why should we care that people are going hungry if we don't see those people, if we're not going hungry? That's Duarte Geraldino exploring the tough questions that other people are asking. It's for a series Duarte's been working on for Al Jazeera Impact, which follows stories about the global economy. He's been covering the coronavirus pandemic's effect on hunger around the world. Duarte's a journalist and an editor. And someone who's passionate about how we connect the dots to real people. And there are a lot of real people going hungry because of this pandemic. 130 million. The tragedy is that some of them haven't been born yet. Children who will be born in the next couple of months are some of the most vulnerable. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I quickly learned Duarte's spending more time than he's used to, thinking about food at home, too. When's the last time you went to the grocery store? Oh, I go every other day. I have uh, newborn twins. Oh, my goodness. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I haven't heard a peep yet. (laughs) (laughs) We're at the stage now where we're blending stuff. They eat a lot of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables. I don't have a tree in my backyard because I live in a New York City apartment. Um, And I don't want to give them rotting food. Have you noticed your bills going up when it comes to the grocery store? Have you noticed a change during this period of lockdown and period of pandemic? We're all money conscious right now because we don't know what the future holds. There's so many people who have been laid off. Absolutely. This is a scary time, even for families who are doing okay or think they're doing okay. Hunger kind of sneaks up on you. The first stage in hunger is malnutrition because you shift what you eat. So if before the pandemic you were eating fresh fruit and vegetables, drinking your milk, eating meat for protein, you, like Duarte, probably notice prices on all of those things have gone up. And if you've shifted what you've eaten during COVID-19, during the crisis and the lockdown, you're already moved down a notch. And sometimes it's difficult for people to accept that because we assume, hey, if I have three slices of bread, then I'm okay. And so the longer someone is out of work, the longer that they are forced to shift what they're eating, eventually they will be eating less. More than 800 million people were going to bed hungry before the pandemic hit. That's according to the World Health Organization. And like Duarte said, this pandemic could mean 130 million more on top of that. And we're hearing some of those stories already. This sign says they're starving people to death. In Colombia, protests against hunger have broken out. We are hungry. There are babies dying of starvation because the aid hasn't arrived. In India, day laborers are going without food. People here have been snatching the plates from our hands. We've been sitting here for three days. There's no food or water available here. Nothing. No milk to give my child either. South Africa had hunger problems before the pandemic. The mayor of Johannesburg says people in a million households don't have enough to eat. So did South Sudan. 
Even prior to the first coronavirus case in South Sudan, many faced starvation. And Zimbabwe. Most Zimbabweans are already struggling to put food on the table. Now the global health crisis is making more families here vulnerable. And hunger is a problem in North America, too. We reached to our day where he lives, in New York City. Just last year, it was also home to 65 billionaires and well over a quarter million millionaires. In New York City, one of the wealthiest places in the world, you have people who are on the brink of going hungry. This is clearly a problem. And it's a problem a lot of you have already been hearing about or even anticipated. So what we wanted to know, and what Duarte wanted to know, is what are some solutions? How can we solve the problem of hunger this time so we can look forward to a future that looks a little better than the world looks today? New York still has cases of COVID-19, and that became pretty apparent in the first few minutes of our conversation. Yeah, I'm in New York City. And so <laughs> there is there are sirens in the background. Um, is that an everyday occurrence now? It is an everyday occurrence. During the height of the COVID-19 crisis, there were sirens every day. It was a little scary. Mm-hmm. Duarte says this new hunger problem is more subtle. No one sounding an alarm. Did you speak to anyone who was facing hunger right now? So yes, I did speak with people who are facing hunger, but there's so much shame wrapped up on it. They didn't actually want to be quoted. No one wants to be seen as the hungry person. So instead, I quoted people on the record who say that they had been hungry. We spoke to one man. Edward Summers, executive director of the Bronx Private Industry Council. Who was born in the Bronx, lives in the Bronx, and now works in the Bronx. We should say, for those who don't know New York, The Bronx is very diverse and largely working class. It's seen some rough times in the not-too-distant past. And he tells stories about being, you know, one of 12 kids, and there was never enough food to eat. We had massive poverty all throughout the South Bronx. There was never enough money and our food around, and often would stand on a government cheese line, as we would call it. Government cheese which uh, for people who didn't grow up in the United States, government cheese is this huge image of, oh my God, if I got this, then I was not only poor, but I was at risk of going hungry. We would go to a community center, our local church, and they would have these big blocks of cheese and then these bologna sandwiches. And so I remember growing up, uh, we never enjoyed the bologna sandwiches. There was this sense of, our lack of quality to the food that we got. In a lot of our minds, it was just that people didn't really care about us. We always threw the bologna off the the sandwich and ate the cheese and the bread. It was a little dehumanizing, sort of standing in line um, and getting this food, some of which you knew you had to throw away because you felt like this was some awkward byproduct. People need food, but people still want to be treated with respect. In the case of COVID-19, people who have lost their job, who have experienced an economic shock, people have taste, right? They either like something or they don't like something. We have to respect that. He's now working to make sure that there isn't a second and third and fourth generation while he's alive that's going through the same thing that he went through. He's trying to hack the system. Duarte told us Edward Summers is getting the food that comes into the Bronx to the people of the Bronx instead of the high-end restaurants in Manhattan where it had been going. And he's giving the people of the Bronx the respect 
that comes with having a choice of what to eat. So, if they don't want bologna, they aren't forced to eat bologna. He says that oftentimes when the government tries to help people, they sometimes mismatch need with their ability to supply food. So, for example, the Bronx has uh, this food market. It's essentially considered the breadbasket in New York City. A lot of food from all over the world is shipped to New York through the Bronx, and it gets funneled through some of the finest restaurants in the city. Um, but oftentimes, people who can't afford it don't get it. And those folks, a lot of the time, live in the Bronx. So when COVID hit, a lot more people were hungry. And Edward started rerouting some of that food. What we immediately noticed was a, a great opportunity uh, when COVID-19 hit, right? And immediately what we thought of was we have the biggest food distribution hub in New York City at the Hunts Point Market. And so we teamed up with an organization called World Central Kitchen and Rat for the Bronx. We have um, 10 restaurants that we're working with right now. And these are restaurants that people respect, enjoy. Each restaurant has a different cuisine to them. Uh, we have a restaurant that is called Accra, which is an African restaurant. So we have really focused on not just feeding folks, but making sure that we bring a certain level of quality and dignity to the meals that we're providing to the local community. And Duarte says Edward was employing people too. All of these restaurants were essentially shuttered because of the virus-induced lockdowns. And so doing, he says, that he wants to make sure that, one, the employees have work so that if a, if a restaurant got a government grant or a special loan to stay open, that they continue to stay open by having business. When you employ people in the community, you make sure that there's money floating around. So Edward is trying to keep the food in the Bronx. While globally, the food chain has been expanding. You have big companies producing a lot of milk, or meat, or apples. But they're not just selling that food to their local communities. They can't make enough money that way. Instead, they're traveling further and selling more. And that comes with challenges. Food does not last forever. And if it lasts forever, you almost don't want to eat it. Right. Uh, because, <laughs> because, <Space> food. <laughs> because you have to be able to digest it. But the longer the chain, the more time um, is involved. And so you you're racing to make sure that the food can get from farmer to consumer before it's no longer viable. While it's still good to eat. Oftentimes we have labels that says sell by this date. That's the rot date. We often think food is wasted if it's not eaten. Really, food is wasted if it's not paid for. Mm. What COVID-19 did and the shutdowns was disrupt the system so much that it didn't have enough space to absorb the waste. So the food was there, but with COVID-19, the workers weren't always there to process it. Not all of the truck drivers were working, so it wasn't getting to where it needed to be. Big suppliers of schools and workplace cafeterias weren't using the food. People weren't going to lunch at school or work anymore. That balance that we all relied on really exposed the idea that so many people could go hungry, not because there wasn't enough food, but because they couldn't pay the extra price for the increased waste. We've been seeing this desperation to sell food all around the world, in the Philippines, 
Before the lockdown, this was just an empty parking lot. Now this has become a temporary drop-off point for farmers who are desperate to sell their vegetables. And here in the U.S., we also saw those striking images of milk being thrown out, chickens being euthanized, all while people are going hungry. Across America, dairy farmers have dumped countless gallons of fresh, perfectly usable milk because there is no one to buy it. Dairymen also say it's a transportation and grocery store issue for those trying to get milk to market. Two million chickens in Delaware and Maryland are being euthanized. In the course of his reporting, Duarte also spoke to a professor about hunger on a global level and what can be done to fix these global supply chains. His name is Raj Patel, and he's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. What is your specialty? I do the political economy of the world food system. Duarte asked him how the world food system allowed for, well, a lot of spilled milk. How have you seen COVID-19 impact the food supply chain? People are dramatically poorer now. That's why you have lines a mile long outside food banks with people sitting in their cars waiting to be able to get food. The supply chain has been affected because people can't afford to buy it. Raj was at one of those food banks himself. You know, I volunteered at the food bank and what families are getting is, you know, onions, potatoes, carrots. We ran out of apples halfway through our four-hour packaging run. The apple was meant to be the fruit, and we ran out of that. There'd been such a run at the supermarkets from people who'd actually been able to afford the food that the, the food bank was having trouble sourcing these, you know, the, the, the bulk food for everyone else. And apples are being hit from the supply side, too. Just a few weeks ago, more than 600 farm workers in the U.S. state of Washington got sick with COVID-19. More than half of them were working with apples. Raj says farm workers are part of this global supply chain, and they are some of the most vulnerable, too. I am afraid of getting sick, because if I don't recover, I will die. Maria is undocumented and one of three million farm workers in the U.S. I would leave four children in the orphanage. I am obviously afraid, but I have to work. She's an essential worker and essential to the supply chain. But she's paid very little and doesn't have many legal protections. A lot of farm workers aren't properly protected from getting the virus either. In the United States, it was always clear that while it closed uh, the border facility issuing visas for farm workers, they merely just rolled over last year's applicants so that the 250,000-odd farm workers who had the right kinds of visa last year were just allowed back in to carry on working. In Europe, for example, when, when the borders went up, no foreign workers were initially allowed in. And so there were calls, for example, in France, for furloughed workers to be patriotic and go out into the fields and harvest asparagus. And, you know, some did, but in the end, France, Germany, a few other countries eventually chartered planes of migrant workers to come in. So the workers crossing borders are part of this global supply chain. And of course, the food is too. The sort of flows of trade are bigger than people assume. In general, the United States gets most of its food from within the United States, but your coffee, your chocolate, your tropical products, your bananas, all of those will necessarily cross borders in order to reach you. So, for example, we've had uh, 
the Donald Trump opening up the, the meat processing factories um, of the major meat processing factories. 40% of the, the cows uh, slaughtered there, or the, the beef slaughtered there is heading to China. So drinking Ethiopian coffee at a cafe in Paris or eating a steak in Shanghai might just seem like a few of the everyday luxuries of modern life. But as Raj points out, this system has some defects. The UN says about a quarter of the world's population struggles to eat safe, nutritious, and sufficient food. We were already in a situation where there were two billion people food insecure around the world. And that was normal before COVID happened. That was the the situation as normal when the economy was roaring and it had never done better. The stock market had never been higher. We can't return to that. I mean, the the place that I look for for, for a lot of these answers comes from a group that has been on top of this for for decades. Uh, And it's the international peasant movement, La Via Campesina, the peasant way. They have 200 million members around the world. Uh, And so they've been uh, working on bottom-up solutions to hunger and poverty for for decades. And their answers are about local supply chains. They understand that, for example, in Brazil, if you create the infrastructure where uh, schools have to buy their food or 20% of their food from local sources, and those local sources are paid extra, then you create markets for local produce and you shorten the supply chains and you create ways of making sure farmers are well-paid and the school kids are well-fed. When the crates are filled, a rented truck will deliver them to schools. The cooperative will soon get their own delivery truck with a government grant she applied for, which means they'll be able to increase their profits. It's a win-win, an embrace of the short supply chains rather than the, the long, frail international supply chains is something that's worth learning from this experience. So many economies that used to be food self-sufficient have been tilted by structural adjustment loans and histories of colonialism to becoming the kinds of economies that can't feed themselves but rely on exporting primary products to richer countries and then using that income to buy food from the international economy. Until we decouple those economies, you can't imagine a world of just everyone localized because some countries don't have the capacity to localize. And that means in the medium term doing things like land reform, antitrust regulation against the four or five large corporations that control each part of the food system. Change happens when people unionize. Change happens when people walk off the job. And that's been the lesson that we've seen actually from everything from the Instacart strikes to Tyson factories. And we've been seeing that the workers and their families are outside saying, look, you may want your hamburger, but I need my parents. So Raj is saying there are people whose lives are at stake so that others can stay home and order groceries. And this is something Duarte's been thinking a lot about. The person whose life is at stake and the person ordering groceries, they're not that far apart. A couple of years back, I was uh, sitting at a restaurant having a sandwich with with a friend. And there was a homeless person. I was asking for money. And then he yelled and screamed, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And everyone was so appalled by the audacity of this man to declare that he was hungry. And the restaurant owners rushed out to say, get out of here, get out of here. You're disturbing my customers. Oh, no. And I was horrified because here I was with a sandwich satisfying my hunger 
But now, years later, during the coronavirus outbreak, I see what he was saying, that there are a lot of us who are hungry. Malika, we are all on a slope towards hunger. Remember that question Duarte posed in the beginning? Why should we care that people are going hungry if we don't see those people, if we're not going hungry? Raj Patel had an answer. The people who are going hungry are the people you depend on to be at the grocery store. They're the people you depend on to pick your food. They're the people you depend on to cook your food. They're the people who are the most essential workers right now. But that's not good enough. You should care about hunger because it is an affront to you that anyone in your community should suffer that way. That that anyone in your community is going to bed at night worried about their children crying because they're hungry. And more importantly, the reason that so many people in the world are going hungry is because of the way we live right now. Here we are, bourgeois and able to afford food and able to endure this lockdown. And that's only been made possible by maybe some luck we've had, some good decisions we've made. But ultimately, it rests on a longer history of exploitation, for which at some level we must be accountable. It's not our fault, but it's our duty to do something about it. That's the reason to care about hunger. And that's The Take. Coming up on Friday, we revisit a conversation about race. That's worth having again, especially now. Today's episode was produced by Amy Walters, with help from Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Our social media producer is Natalia Aldana. Our executive producer is Stacey Samuel. And our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. If you like the show, leave us a review. It's always great to hear from you. You can also send us a note on Twitter or Instagram. We're at AJ the Take. We'll be back.